0: If you brought a copy of Scripture, you can find a couple of places, Psalm 145, and then on the back side of the message we'll be in Revelation 5, so you might want to make a marker there if you would. As we continue in our series, Theology on Fire, we're talking today about God. There's a subject for you. We just completed a week of vacation Bible school. Wow, all the servants are in here. It was a fabulous, fabulous week. Tons of energy. And I mean, at the end of the, the second from last night, I, it, I was just spent. I mean, my body was tired, my voice was shot. And uh, I just wanted to go home. Except I had a couple of kids that wanted to talk. And uh, one had a confession to make, the other a question. And the question she had was very simple, but very powerful. Very sincerely, she asked, how can I know that God exists? While scripture and experience affirm that we naturally believe God exists, right? The fool has said in his heart, there's what? There's no God, right? We naturally believe that the heavens declare Romans 1. There are lots of passages that affirm that it's natural for us to believe in the existence of God. But the deniers that are out there, via the the existence of evil and the near-universal acceptance of the theory of evolution, have successfully twisted the minds of both young and old, and perhaps some of you. But for us who believe... God's existence eventually has to be accepted by faith. And while outsiders are looking into our lives who know God, they are looking at us in our trials to see if our faith is in operation, and it needs to be. Someone has said the gospel story needs to be seen as attractive before it will be considered as true. The writer of Hebrews made this declaration. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. That is God. For he who comes to God must believe what we're supposed to believe. That he is. That he exists. And that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now this thought I'm about to give you, I'm going to run through the entire message. Because I think one of the greatest problems that we have, those of you who don't know God, and even those of you who do oftentimes, is the way we view God. I've heard it said that God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. Our tendency is to bring God down to our level our experience, and thus our limitations. We, without intending to do so then, create a a, a virtual caricature of God in our minds. And in fact, by the way, God told us as much that that's what we do in Psalm 50 when he says, you thought I was exactly like you. Have you ever read that? That's God talking to us. God says that when we bring him down to our own image. Luther said to his theological adversary Erasmus, he said, your thoughts of God are too human. What a rebuke. Now we know that God created man in his own image, right? The Bible teaches that. It's very clear. As such, we are distinct. Listen to this. As such, we are distinct from everything else God has created, including the animal world. We think, we feel, we determine, we do, we, we, we will. Animals don't do that. They never have. They never will. They operate off of instinct. And while God has communicated some of his characteristics to us, because we are created in his Im- image, He is nevertheless, listen, he is nevertheless, God is nevertheless distinct from us in his incommunicable attributes. Big word there. We don't say incommunicable very often, but that just means when we say incommunicable, we're saying that which is not communicated to us. God has certain attributes that he does not give us, that he both Possesses and maintains. Just the other day, I was watching a YouTube of John Piper with a little sermonette on God, unpacking some of his attributes. And it was very powerful because it had the music and it had all these, you know, these Hubble, you know, sc- screenshots of the, uh, of the of, uh, stellar uh, universe. It was very powerful, it was very worshipful. And I was just really getting into it and right in the middle of it, as the YouTube channel will do, it went to a commercial. And it wasn't just a commercial, it was a commercial on how to kill mosquitoes. (laughs) And I just started laughing. I mean, I just started laughing. Because my next thought was, God, when I think of your majesty, when I think of your sovereignty, when I think of your power and your glory, my problem's... They're like mosquitoes, really. So while this, there's no way even in a couple of weeks in which we're we're gonna be able to cover all of God's attributes, much less the depth of them. God is, that's what we're talking about here. God is. And I want you to know, first and foremost, God is great. He's great. You're at the, In the Psalm, 145th Psalm, you see the third verse where it says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will praise your works to another and declare your mighty acts. I will, now David says, I will meditate on your glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. He says, I, I, He says. Well, then he goes, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I personally will declare your greatness. God is great. Adam Ramsey in his book, Truth on Fire, which we make no apology for the sermon series coming off of that. It's a great book. You ought to get it. You ought to read it has said this, nobody who catches even the faintest glimpse of this God walks away with a swagger, walks up to him with a swagger rather, or away from him with a yawn. The 139th Psalm is one of those Psalms that that just put the omnis of God on display. I love it. You know, that God is omniscient, that he is omnipresent, and that he is omnipotent. Omni means all, and we talk about God being His greatness is on display. We we talk about God's omniscience, and right out of the shoot, it does that. David acknowledges, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Just a bare nosed fact, you know my sitting down, my rising up. There's not a word on my tongue that you don't know altogether. You've you've hedged me behind before. All my thoughts are known to you. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. God is omniscient. He knows everything about us. And because that is true, listen, because that is true, God never second guesses himself with you or anyone else. And even more encouraging, take this to heart. He will never misunderstand you. He will never misinterpret you. Throughout my years of living for Jesus, I've had a a, a handful of encounters where I've been at loggerheads with individuals. And we just couldn't come to, you know, we just couldn't come to figure out what we should do. And it's very discouraging sometimes because I'm certain this individual has misunderstood me. Have you ever been there? But I'm just as certain he's thinking, he don't understand me. Listen, God will never misunderstand you. God will never misinterpret you because he's omniscient, and that should encourage you. He's omnipresent. Where shall I flee from your spirit? Where shall I go from your presence? Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. If I make my bed in heaven, well, you're there. If I go down to the depths of hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the earth, even there, your hand will lead me, your right hand, And so on. God is everywhere but hell. But make no mistake, Satan is not the God of hell. God is the God of hell. He's just not there. And it's the very absence of God in hell that's gonna make hell, hell for those who go there. He is omnipresent. And he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's nothing God cannot do. You remember, the, uh, you remember the, the maiden that Gabriel shows up and says to her, he says to Mary, you're gonna ha- give birth to the Son of God, the Son of the Highest. She's incredulous. She says, how can this be? I've never known a man. And the angel said, listen, to you, I mean, the power of the Almighty is gonna come upon you and yada, yada. And then he says, Remember, with God, nothing is what? Nothing's impossible. But my favorite passage, I think, on on the omnipotence of God to kind of tattoo us with it is is Job. You know, here's Job. He's, He's hurting from head to toe, literally, and his friends pretty much gave up being really beneficial to him after about a week. But they're still sort of yapping at him. And Job is really at the end of his tether. He demands an audience with God, which is, wow. Demanding an audience with God? He basically does. He wants to be able to make his case before God. And so in Job 38, God shows up in a whirlwind. God shows up and when he does so, he reveals himself to Job in a dazzling display of his omnipotence. Starts talking about the constellations that he, that he hurled into being. And he keeps asking the question, where were you when I did this, Job? Where were you? Were you there? It's a rhetorical question. Of course he wasn't. And the result was that Job repents in sackcloth and ashes and puts his hand over his mouth. I can't even talk back here. How great is God? He's great enough to be omniscient omnipresent, omnipotent, know everything about you, know everything about me, and still love me, right? Still love you. So back to the 139th Psalm. I love this. My favorite thing about this. David, in a very, it's almost cold, hard fact, says, Lord, you've searched me and known me. He says that right out of the chute. But he ends by praying this. Search me, O God, and know my what? Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's anything wicked in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love this because on the bookends of Psalm 139, you have the cold-hearted fact about God knowing you. And on the other side, God, I invite it. And this is where we have to go. If our theology is gonna be on fire, then we have to welcome, watch for this, what God is already doing. You know that God knows everything about you. You know that he searched you. You know that he never misinterprets you. He never misunderstands you. But do you welcome that? That's the question here because that's what David is doing. He's welcoming what God is already doing. Secondly, God is holy. God is holy. So here in Isaiah 6, the young prophet is... Despondent, his king has died. And suddenly he sees a vision of God. He's high, he's lifted up his train, fills the temple, and these angels are all around him. They're coming up, covering up parts of their being, and they're saying in unison love, 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 mercy, 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 justice, justice, justice. No, you never have triplicate form in the attributes of God except for holy and you see it in revelation 4 as well holy 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 is the lord of hosts right the whole earth full of his what his glory this is called a triple superlative. Some people say, well, it's it's, it's talking about the triune aspect of God. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. That could be alluded to, but that's probably not what the writer was saying. He's talking about absolute holiness. John writes, God is light and in him is no darkness whatsoever. Have you ever read that? He is absolutely holy and no other attribute is expressed in triplicate form, and more often than God's holiness, 235 times in the New Testament alone. The word holy, the Greek word is hagias. It means to be separate. It means to be otherly. It means to be unlike anything else. This is an incommunicable attribute of God. God alone is holy with no darkness, no evil, no sin, and yet he calls those of us who know him to be holy like he's holy. We're called to that. So we have a problem. God made man in his own image, and we keep returning the favor. So if God is holy... He can never do anything evil or sinful, right? So when I see, listen, when I see things differently in this world, when I see things differently, and I, then I have to conclude the problem is not with God's character. The problem is with my sight. I'm not seeing this rightly. Life can be hard. Very hard, right? Right? And the world can be evil, very evil. But if God is holy, and he is, then we must trust his wisdom, we must trust his love, and allowing the heartaches that he allows, both in this world and in our lives. God doesn't have to explain himself to us. And just because God doesn't give you a reason why you're going through what you're going through doesn't mean there isn't one. But we let God be God, right? Because he's holy. Thirdly, he's self-existent. Theologians call this the aseity of God. Self-existent. That is, it means there is nothing, listen to this, there's nothing outside of God that God needs. He has no needs. So remember, Moses sees the burning bush in the wilderness, he approaches the burning bush, removes his shoes. God dialogues with Moses. And in so much as doing so, he says, you're gonna go down and rescue our, my people. And Moses said, you know, well, you know, while I'm doing this, like, who do I tell him is sending me? And God replies, you tell him what? I am. The self-existent one. The eternal self-existent one is sending you. God as a self-existent being is eternally independent. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He wants us. He loves us. He's inviting us to know him, but he doesn't have any needs. And you might be think, well, how can this be? I mean, people need people. Man needs woman. Woman needs man. Children need Their parents, friends need friends. But I would remind you that God made man in his own image and we keep returning the favor. Whenever we bring God down to our level, we assume he has the same limitations and the same needs that you and I have. That's a wrong assumption. Don't be thinking that way. I mean, God came down to our level through his son, Jesus. That should be enough, amen? And even in the same psalm I alluded to earlier, God makes this comment, he said, you know, if I was hungry, I wouldn't be asking you. Why? Because he doesn't have any needs. And the gods of yesteryear and in some countries, still going, the very sacrifices are the way in which they feed the need of the God. Not the case with our God. Fourthly, He is all sustaining. He's all sustaining. And I don't think you can improve on what the Apostle Paul said, referring to Jesus, when he said that in Him, that is in Christ, All things, the old version says consist, but it means to bind or holds together. All things hold together in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter one, verse three said essentially the same thing, that that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, by his omnipotence. Every once in a while people say, well, are you ever challenged by the messages that you're getting ready to preach? Are you kidding me? I mean, here's one right here. I I just have never thought much on this verse. Here it is in Psalm 75. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. Oh, that's so good. So when my life hangs in the balance... When my job hangs in the balance, when my marriage hangs in the balance, when my kids hang in the balance, when my health is on the brink and hanging in the balance, God studies my pillars. If God can hold the universe together by his power, he can keep your life from unraveling. Amen? Who have I in heaven but you? And on earth I have none besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is all-sustaining. And he is sovereign. You wondered, some of you, when I was going to get to this one. God is sovereign. That just means he rules all things and over all things. So here is Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, who has defied the living God and become animal-like for seven years. He finally looks up, acknowledges that God rules in the kingdom of men, and then at the end of Daniel 4 is this testimony. 4.35, he says, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the armies of heaven, that's the angelic armies, amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stop him or stay his hand, or say to him, what are you doing? Why? Because God is sovereign. He is the ruler over all things. Here's how Isaiah put it in the 45th chapter of Isaiah. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above. And let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots? Does the clay say to him who forms it, what, uh, what are you making? Or your, your work has no handles. It doesn't even make sense. We just had a baptism in the former service where a young man gave testimony to the fact that he got an acute form of diabetes in his youth and praise the Lord, this young man saw that as an act of God himself to get him to a place where he no longer thought he had to control everything about his life. Only God does that, amen? I was at a grandson's football game a couple of years ago. And uh, they had a really good team. They just cleaned everybody's clock. And, uh, but the coach had a really particular habit. He would put the A team in, and the team would get like a 20-point lead with like half the game left. they put the B team in. And by putting the B team in, the, oppo- the opponents would come back, sometimes even take the lead, causing people like myself on the sideline going, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then with just minutes left, put the A-team back in and they'd win the game. God is like that coach. Sometimes we see things, we question, we wonder. Don't you ever wonder, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Why so long? Psalm 13, right? Why so long, oh Lord? Why aren't you coming through? Put the A-team back in. But he always does because God is sovereign. He's in control, and we have to believe that. So he says, "All things work together for good." And the problem is that word together, because <laughs> together is a lot of intermingling, isn't it? All things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to His purpose. Finally, he's worthy. There'll be more next week, but he's worthy. Go to the flip side of your Bible, Genesis, or Genesis Revelation chapter five. I love this scene. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I don't assume all of you are, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're in this scene. This is futuristic. This is still to come. The earth, on the earth, all hell is broke loose. Satan has had his heyday, but it's time, it's time for God to reclaim the earth. He's holding in his hand in Revelation 5 the title deed to the earth. And a beckon call goes out to the one who's worthy to, un, to open the seal and to return and reclaim the earth. Nobody can be found. Everybody's waving, no, nobody can be found. And somebody's, whoa, 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 wait. The lion from the tribe of Judah, he was slain. He's worthy, right? No one is found worthy. But in Revelation 5 and verse 9, it says this. The next verse. And they sang a new song saying, what is it? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Glory, hallelujah. That's Jesus. And we've got to get to a place in our life here on earth, because this is what we're going to be doing if we know him in eternity, singing glory and worthiness to him. You are worthy. But you ought to start now, Practicing. And God will break you if you don't. He broke me, and it was only 13 years ago. A lot of you have heard the story. I had a son that was off the chain, doing horrible things. So much of what I valued and so much of what I identified with was hanging in the balance. And I lie in bed one night, weeping, crying out to God, to rescue my son. And he reminded me that night of a verse that I had memorized years ago, from Psalm 63, verse three. Your loving kindness is better than life itself. Therefore my lips will praise you. And God spoke to me, will you hold me more worthy than the soul of your son? I'm telling you, that broke me. I broke and repented. Because I had made an idol out of my own kid. When you come to the reality of the worthiness of God over everything and anything and anyone else, it'll break you. And some of you probably need to be broken. God is God. And we have so many more attributes to cover. One of my favorites is the fact that he's immutable. He never changes. I am the Lord, I don't change. God never changes. He never becomes anything. He never improves. He doesn't have a learning curve. There is one exception on the change scale and that is when he became a man. The eternal immutable God purposely mutated And while we're not called to bring him down to our level, he came down in the person of his son and did what he had never been before, became human, subject to change, physically, mentally, emotionally, and yet never gave up the essence that he was God. And why would he do that? Because he loves us. Because he loves you. And the fact that you can't kill God unless he takes on humanness. The scene in Revelation 5, the scene in heaven is you and me who know him. After, after all the glories of life and salvation and all the things that you enjoy in this life, because after all, Jesus did come that we might have life and we might have it abundantly. Amen. I like life. I like living. I like the joys. This is after all of that. But it's also after all the hurts, all the sorrows, all the cancer, all the struggles, all the divorces, all the losses, all the tears. This is us. We're standing there. And what are we doing? What are we doing? Look Look at what we're doing. We're singing with loud voices. Say it together: Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, glory, and blessing. Hallelujah. Is it any wonder that Lewis, C.S. Lewis, said that the first two words that'll come out of our mouth when we get to heaven will be, of course. Because he is God. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Stop dragging God and his character down to your level. He's already come down to our level on his own. In the person of Jesus. Some of you need to Repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today and have a relationship with him. And for the rest of us here who do know him, exalt him. Exalt him. Our God is in heaven, the Bible says, and he does whatever he pleases. Are you okay with that? You need to be. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, with gratitude, we come before you and thank you for who you are, for your greatness. And we pray with the prayer that Jesus gave us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed. Hallowed, holy, separate, otherly is your name. And now we pray, Lord, that you would take those of us who know you deeper into our knowledge of you, more trusting in your love and your wisdom, content to not get all the answers on this side because we just won't. But to demonstrate our trust in you so that others might see that and be attracted to you. And then of course, Lord, we pray for those in this room or watching online who've never really come into a relationship with you, You are indeed a caricature in their mind. Would you, Lord, make it clear to them as only you can do that you are God above all things and that you sent Jesus to die and rise for them so that they could have a relationship with you. And then we would all sing, as we will one day, whether we know you or not, we'll recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those of us who love him will sing worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.